Hey guys, it's Erica and Rachel, and this is Story Crime. Good to see you, Erica. Good to see you too. How's your week been going? I heard you had a fun night. Yes, I went to a drag show. And if anyone knows me, they know I am obsessed with RuPaul's Drag Race. And this was her queens. And it was simply amazing. That sounds amazing. I miss going to drag shows. I haven't been to one in so long. Oh, and it felt just like it. we were in 2019. <laughs> I loved yeah, it. Sounds like you're having a more fun week than me. I yeah, had, how was your week? It has been... Another crazy week in my life. So mm-hmm. nothing like specific. It's just felt wild. And like I was saying earlier, I'm like on my third cup of coffee and it's 745 at night and I'm still drinking it. Just to, like, <laughs> finish everything I got to finish in a day. Okay. So if you so. start to talk really fast, what's like something I can say to slow you down? Whoa, Nelly. <laughs> Whoa, Nelly. <laughs> we got this. <laughs> that <laughs> so sometimes when i drink too much coffee i get a little weird so we're gonna try to keep it not so weird tonight um this is a very scary case that we're doing today and it's a case that really like hits close to home for me specifically because it happened somewhere that i did call home for Ooh. quite a while or somewhere that i called some close to somewhere where i called home i should say so just like before i get going. I do want to just like give a shout out to all of my peeps down in Prince Edward County. This one's for you guys. And I hope I can do it justice. Shout out to the county. Yeah, to the county people. You guys all know who you are. I'm not going to name all of you, but I love you all. So I hope I can do this one justice and get it right. And you guys will enjoy it. So we are going to be talking about Russell Williams today. If you can sounds familiar. It is. Should, because not only was he a well-known military high up in Canada, but he is also one of the most notorious murderers that our country has known in the last 20, 25 years. So No way. I was going to try to bury the lead a little bit on this one, but I just didn't, I couldn't. It just... I think it would be too obvious once I get into even like the first line. So that's who we're talking about today. And just another thing to note about this case, uh, the book that I used for this is a book I've had for years, and it's called A New Kind of Monster by Timothy Appleby. And I bought that book when I was on my way to Italy in 2012. I bought it at Pearson Airport. And I remember reading it on the airplane and every night throughout my trip there. I That's how I would end my evening. And I remember getting to some points of this book and I knew the case and I knew, like, I remember following it when it happened back in 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. And reading the details of this case scared the bejesus out of me. And I don't know why. This is a case that just gets me in my gut. Oh, makes the hairs on my neck stand up because you just would never have seen it coming from this guy. So without further ado, we'll get right into it. They did. I really <laughs> built that up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I hope I can make it live up to what I just built up to. So, so yeah. So Jessica Lloyd 
was 27 years old when she was reported missing by her mother in January of 2010. She lived alone in a home off of Highway 37, which is a stretch of road that runs in between the city of Belleville, Ontario, and a little village called Tweed, which is tiny. And Tweed is like, it's so small. It's smaller. It's, think, I know this isn't going to mean a lot to people, but think Merlin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> small. It's, it's, it's pretty small. And one of the things, here's a, a weird fact about Tweed is that a lot of people think that Elvis is hiding there. He's not dead. In this tiny little town of 100 people. (laughs) Yeah. This is where Elvis is. He is hiding in Tweed. Or was hiding in Tweed, I'm sure. He'd probably be actually dead now. (laughs) But what do I know? Anyway, so that's just a weird fact. It's probably not true. But I'm not going to discount it because... Anything's possible. Anything is possible. So Jessica was actually born in Ottawa, Ontario, but in 1990, when Jessica was just eight years old, her family relocated to the Belleville area and they bought that house that she lived in on Highway 37. Mm-hmm. Now, her father did pass away and her mother would end up eventually moving out of that house into a bit of a smaller place. And just, but Jessica would continue to live in the family home. She had attended Loyalist College, which, whoop, whoop, fellow Loyalist mm-hmm. College graduate right here. And she would graduate from Loyalist in 2003 from the Business Administration and Human Resources Program, and she would begin working at Triboard Transportation Service in Napanee, Ontario. She was known as a really great employee, uh, very friendly and outgoing, and she was also known as being, quote, famously reliable. So it was because of this reliable nature that rang alarm bells on the morning of January 29th when Jessica failed to show up for her scheduled shift. Uh Her employer ended up contacting her mother, Roxanne, who then traveled from, uh, who then traveled from Belleville to Jessica's house because her house was just right outside of Belleville proper, I guess. Okay. So when she arrived that morning, she found Jessica's car was still in the driveway. So already not looking good, but hopefully, you know, maybe she's inside, right? Hopefully. Yeah. And she also, so she went inside the house just to get it, you know, just to see if she was there. And she saw that all of her personal belongings, including her purse and her cell phone, were still inside sitting on the counter. So again, this is starting to look not great. And, oh, well, realizing there was a very big problem here, uh, Roxanne actually contacted, she ended up contacting her son, Andy, Jessica's brother, and then she called the Belleville police. So Jessica was nowhere to be found. She was not in the house. Um, So the police recognized the urgency of the situation pretty early on and quickly moved into action. And they started their investigation into Jessica's disappearance. Missing persons posters were distributed in the area surrounding Lloyd's home and Facebook posts were quickly popping up and being shared. Mm. The community really came together to find the girl who was known to be just a kind and loving friend and sister and daughter to everyone that knew her. So massive searches of the area were underway and police officers were scouring the area by foot and planes were dispatched by CFB Trenton, which is the local Air Force base there. And Trenton is about, I want to say like 20 minutes outside of Belleville going the other way. So, Yeah. Uh, so they were dispatched and they were leading searches from like above ground. Tips were starting to come in from area locals. And one such tip led investigators to the discovery of tire tracks frozen in the snow 
in a small patch of woods on the back edge of Jessica's property line. The police also identified two sets of footprints leading from Jessica's back door to where the frozen tire tracks were found. So armed with this information, on February 3rd, 2010, the police set up a roadside checkpoint along Highway 37 close to where Jessica's home was. They were hoping that if they could link the tire tracks to a passing motorist, they could either get a solid lead in the case or at the very least rule the tire tracks out completely. Yeah, smart. So many cars did pass through the checkpoint that night, but one driver who came through the checkpoint would be an almost exact match to what the police were looking for. This guy was driving a 2001 Nissan Pathfinder, and the tires from the SUV were identical to the tracks police were looking for. Wow, what are the odds? (laughs) Right? So the man driving the vehicle was in his mid to late 40s and was polite with officers answering their questions, and he engaged in some idle chit-chat while they got a closer look at his tires. Mm -hmm. And while he was courteous with law enforcement, he did make a point of telling them that he was in a terrible rush to get home to care for a sick child. Mm -hmm. So the police allowed the driver to head on his way but took note of his license plate, his phone number, all of his personal information, that kind of stuff, just in case they needed to follow up with him at a later date, which they probably wouldn't seem unusual. I think they would do this if, you know, just in case. So, yeah. Now, the police were hesitant to jump to any conclusions here, as the man behind the wheel of the SUV was none other than our subject of today, Colonel Russell Williams. Colonel. Whoa. So, Williams was a highly regarded, well-known, and decorated member of the Canadian military. Mm -hmm. In the previous July, before Jessica had disappeared, Williams had actually been promoted to the commander of the local Air Force Base, CFB Trenton, which we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. Of course, this made really big news in the area, especially the bubble area, because Trenton was just a short 20-minute drive away, like I said, and was the largest Air Force base in the entire country, and still is the largest Air Force base in the entire country. And they're the ones doing the search on, for, yeah. like, helping with the search. So, what? wow. Yes. We'll talk about that a bit later. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So the police officers thought this has to be a coincidence, right? There's no way that this dedicated soldier could have anything to do with this. But the decision was made that in the name of Theronas, they would place the colonel under surveillance anyways. And if anything, they could rule him out while they continued on other leads. Okay. But as the days went on, Williams began acting pretty suspiciously. It was discovered shortly after being stopped on the road that although he had claimed he was in a rush the night of the roadside stop, the sick or the sick child he was rushing to care for not only wasn't sick, but didn't seem to exist at all, which oh, that was a bold lie, Russell Williams, because yeah, clearly easily proven. And everybody knows you. So I, where'd this child come from, Russell? Yeah. So... Yeah, so the child didn't even exist, and not only that, he was observed meticulously cleaning his vehicle at a car wash near his home in Orleans, Ontario. So this is, Orleans is like a suburb of the city of Ottawa. Could this person who is trusted with being a huge part of keeping our country and its citizens safe be responsible for the disappearance of Jessica Lloyd? This had to be a coincidence, something else had to be going on here. Things started to line up, and all signs were pointing to the colonel. Uh-oh. So the police knew that they had to bring him in for questioning. Not so 
On February 7th, police in Ottawa contacted Williams and asked if he would come in for an interview just to clear up loose ends involving that traffic stop from a few days earlier. In the nine-hour interview that followed, Russell would not only end up admitting to murdering Jessica Lloyd, but also to one other murder and a string of sexually motivated crimes that spanned the areas of Tweed, Belleville, and Orleans, Ontario, and sending shockwaves through our entire nation of Canada. <laughs> what? Wow. So you Back must- up. <laughs> Rewind. Yeah. I know. He did what? <laughs> yes. So you must remember this, because I definitely remember when this broke, how shocking this was to read it. Mm-hmm. Now, I wasn't living in the Belleville area anymore. I had just graduated from Loyalist, and I had moved closer to home. So I remember seeing the newspaper articles and like calling my Nana who still lived in Belleville and being like, what is happening up in Trenton? Like, this is insane. Yeah. So, and I actually, when I had mentioned about the Facebook post popping up with Jessica, I actually remember getting those Facebook notifications shared with me from family and friends that still live down there. Really? Yeah. So that's why I said this um, case really is um, just a case that really hits home for me because I felt it feels different when it's happening almost like on your home turf where you're from, yeah. right? So, um. so who is Russell Williams anyways, guys? Who is Russell I am going to tell you. I'm going to give you a brief history of Russell Williams. It's not very brief. It might take a while. Okay, I'm ready. All right. So Russell was born on March 7th, 1963 in England. So we will take credit for Justin Bieber, everyone, but Canada will not take credit for this guy. Fair. Just throwing it out there. And his parents' names were Christine and Cedric, or Dave, as he was called by people who knew him. At the age of five, Russell's father moved the family to the Deep River area of Ottawa, Ontario, where he took a job at Chalk River Laboratories, a Canadian nuclear research facility. Hmm. Uh, So while in Deep River, the Williams parents became really good friends with another family known as the Sofkas. When Russell was just seven years old, his mother filed for divorce from his father, citing adultery as the cause of dissolution of marriage. Mm -hmm. Dave did admit to having an affair with Lynn Sofka and the marriage to his wife, Christine was, they were granted a divorce at that time with the friend, with the friend. Ooh. Yes. So apparently they were, there was like a good swinger community in the area. So I'm not sure if that contributed to it. I mean, not mad at it. To each their own. I'm not judging anyone, but apparently that kind of contributed to maybe this relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, So Christine ended up taking Russell and his brother Harvey and moved to the Scarborough area of Toronto. And strangely enough, she ended up remarrying Jerry Sofka. No. Yeah. So they swapped. They just did a literal swap. Yeah. So he, of course, is the husband of the woman that Dave had an affair with. Mm -hmm. The family... Uh, so Christine and Russell and Harvey, they all ended up taking Jerry's last name, but later on Russell would change his name back to Williams. So I'm not really sure why they took his last name because he'd still had a good relationship with his dad and continued to all the way through his life. So they started school in Toronto at the Birchmount Park Collegiate Institute in 1978. While at school, Russell became a distinguished jazz trumpeter and was known, yeah, I wish, <laughs> and was known to be an excellent musician. 
Russell was never someone to have many friends, and his peers remember him as putting off the impression like he was better than other people. Uh We all know, we all know guys like that. Oh, we sure do. (laughs) During his time at Birchmount, Russell did have like a puppy love relationship with a local girl called Sarah, but it was really short lived. And most people who knew Russell back in the day, they just couldn't remember him having relationships with really anybody, much less like an interest in dating so much. So a year later in 1979, the Sofka family moved again, this time to South Korea to the city of it said in the book Pusan, but I think it may be actually no, also known as Busan. So I mean, okay. yeah, that's quite the jump from Toronto, to yeah, South Korea. Yeah, so Russell he didn't like life in South Korea. It wasn't his favorite place. Saying that he didn't like the way men treated women there. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Considering what Russell would go on to become later in life, I find that challenging to take right. his word for. Yes. Right. Well, hard to believe. Yeah. Well, in South Korea, Russell did discover that he had a love for baseball. And this is how he spent most of his free time while he was there. Cool. In 1980, Russell and his brother were sent back to Toronto to finish up high school. And they were enrolled at Upper Canada College, a private all-boys boarding school. And their tuition was $6,000 a year in wow. 1980. I can't even imagine how, like, I could look that up and see what the inflation is on that, but I don't want I don't to. I want to know. Yeah. That's, it's probably up there. I can't believe that. And I think Upper Canada College is still operating now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's still a big place. So is it still all boys? I think so. And I, yeah. And they've had some... Not a pleasant reputation. Yes, that's not a very good place. Um, I'm sure it's a great school. I don't want to judge the school as a whole. And and I'm sure there's great educators there, great students there as well. But they've had a very checkered past. Yeah. Yeah. Look it up if you guys want to know what's happened at Upper Canada College. It's not pretty. Uh, Again, Russell didn't have a huge social circle while attending UCC. People thought he appeared to be stuck up. Even... (laughs) I just included this grad quote in here because it just is so stupid. And it's not stupid because you'll see. Anyways, if you have to ask what jazz is, then you'll never know. And that's a quote by Louis Armstrong. And it's not stupid that Louis Armstrong said that because Louis Armstrong is a jazz legend. It's stupid that Russell said it and we just hate him. So yeah. Idiot. Idiot. He graduated from UCC in 1982 and he enrolled in the politics and economics program through U of T Scarborough campus. While attending university, Russell seemed to loosen up a lot, and those who knew him described him as more of a prankster than being stuck up or anything. He would pull practical jokes on his housemates and coworkers, and he one time filled a coworker's entire office from floor to ceiling with crumpled balls of paper. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> he took, he probably sat all night long, and I just like, would I would take this. hours. Hours, floor to ceiling, door to awesome. back window. That's a lot of paper and a lot of waste. Like, yeah. hello, climate change. I don't know why he did that, but apparently it was worth it to him to pull off the best joke of all time in his mind. Like the office. Must be yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he once also rejigged the lock on the front door. I don't know the technical term for what he did here, but he rejigged it so that his housemates' keys wouldn't work when they came home. I'd be pissed. 
And he did it, like, all himself. Like, just went in, took the lock off, changed it. I, I, I really okay. don't know. He's smart. Another thing he would do is he would hide in the closets of his roommates, sometimes for hours, and he would just wait to jump out at them so he no. could just scare the ever-living shit. No, ma'am. Mm-mm. I've Not cons- today. Not to me. Yeah, so he's a shit for scaring his roommates. Anyways, <laughs> that... that- uh, so that being said, Russell was still very diligent when it came to his day-to-day goings-on. The house was always kept spotless, and somehow he managed to get all of his university-age roommates, who were boys in their 20s, to wear slippers at all times while they were at the, in the house. What? So that the floor would, would stay clean. Wow, kudos to him. I know, because I've been to a few, like you know, student houses. His excess level of control in the university house earned him the nickname of drill sergeant, appropriate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is also where he met his longtime friend, Jeff Farquhar, who would go on to become one of the few people that Russell maintained a relationship with after university. So not the... King from Shrek? Yeah. No. No. Exactly. How did you know? Hey, he's voiced by uh, King Farquhar or Prince Farquhar or whatever he is. He's voiced by the number two on my whole pass list. John Lithgow. John Lithgow, yeah. Yeah. My number one being Colin Mockery. Oh, wait. I thought your number one was Homer Simpson. (laughs) Homer's number three because he's not real. (laughs) So number one is Colin Mockery. So fellow Canadian, if you're listening, Colin, call me. Slide into my DMs on Instagram. Please, Colin. She talks about you all the time. (laughs) Somebody pass this on to Colin Mockery, please. Anyway, so Jeff Farquhar, that was his one friend, and he maintained that relationship all through his after university and on through throughout life. So during his time at U of T, Russell entered into his first serious relationship with an exchange student from Japan called Misa. They dated for a few months before Misa ended up, like, ending their relationship, uh, leaving Russell devastated and just absolutely heartbroken. He tried endlessly to win back her affections before Misa went to Jeff Farquhar and got him to tell Russell to knock it off, which he eventually did. So this failed relationship seemed to really turn Russell off from dating, and he didn't really have any other relationships until he married his wife a few years later. Okay. Now, before we move on from his time in university, I do just want to point out that, yes, U of T Scarborough was also the school that the infamous, uh, you know, this you might know this guy. His name's Paul Bernardo. Oh. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of you might know this guy. Um, he attended uh, U of T Scarborough when he began his reign of terror as the Scarborough Rapist. Did he really? In, yes. So he actually was a year, he was taking the same program as Russell Williams and was a year behind. No. So there has been like a lot of conspiracy theories that Russell was involved in the uh, sexual assaults that occurred at this time. And some sources that I read even stated that there was a belief that he and Paul could have been like accomplices or partners that's wild. Imagine being a professor there and hearing about both of those cases and then being like, holy shit, they were in my class. Like, or being of- a student there that was in both of their classes. 
Yeah. Right. I guess, yeah, sure. they're in the same, but they're yeah. different, different years. Different years and different Either blocks. Way. Either way. Yeah, I'd be fucked. That uh, would be wild. So there's no evidence that supports that they even knew each other, let alone work together. And okay. I'm pretty sure that they've interviewed Paul Bernardo um, without giving him any context about whether or not there was somebody else involved. And like, it just seems like Paul Bernardo, it's hard to take anything he says seriously because he's such a fucking douche, douche canoe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, but he, I just think it's more myth than anything else. There's no truth really to any of those conspiracies that can be backed up. So in 1986, Russell graduated from U of T, but something much more important happened that year to Russell. Uh-oh. It really happened to everyone. Not you, because you were a newborn baby. <laughs> I was only one, so I was around, but I don't remember. And I wish I did, because Top Gun was released in theaters. Oh my God. I was like, what kind of disease happened? <laughs> you know, like, was it another global <laughs> something? But no, just Top Gun. Okay, cool. Top Gun. In the danger zone. When I'm when I'm at school and the kids like go past like the line, I, I, have you seen Top Gun? Uh no. Okay. <laughs> Me, I have not seen it either. Which oh, Rob like <laughs> Rob like every every time I that comes up, he's like, "We're totally watching it," and I'm like, "Nope, I have gone 36 years without seeing that movie. I do not need to watch it." Yeah, but there is a song in that movie called "Danger Zone" by Kenny Loggins. Oh, I mean, I know all the references, of course. Yeah. And uh, whenever my kids, like, leave the tar back at school and start heading beyond where they're not supposed to be, our song, and, like, everyone knows this. Don't go to the danger zone. Keep (laughs) it in the safety zone. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's a big thing at our school. It's, like, my little theme song of outdoor safety rules. You're adorable. I know. That's why they love me. Mm. So Russell really loved Top Gun, and he would watch this movie on repeat, like, 12 times a day. It was always on at Russell's house. Like, obsessed. Obsessed. He knew the movie word for word from start to finish. Literally obsessed. I cannot emphasize to you right now how much he loved Top Gun. (laughs) He was also very inspired by Tom Cruise. Aren't we all? I mean, (laughs) sure. (laughs) I recently listened to another podcast, like shout out to my girls at Red Handed, and they did a really good podcast covering Scientology and Tom Cruise heavily was involved in like, I'm scared of Tom Cruise. I'll just leave it at that. He's a scary Scientology. (laughs) Tom Cruise is a scary man. So he decided, Russell, not Tom Cruise, decided then and there after seeing Top Gun for 1 million times that... He was going to join the Air Force and become a pilot. Stop. His career path was based on Tom Cruise in a movie. I want to know the statistics on how many people quit their day jobs and became (laughs) fighter pilots after Top Gun. I want a statistic on that. Somebody email me and give me those numbers. I wonder if that's available. Yeah. (laughs) Even though his friends thought he was crazy for essentially wasting his entire university education... He started taking flying lessons and was literally a natural in the cockpit. Like, he picked it up just like that. That's wild. I can't even believe this right now. Well, he had been studying 
for right. hours a day. <laughs> monkeys and, monkey do, apparently. Apparently. In mid-1987, Russell packed a bag and headed out to CFB Chilliwack in BC, British Columbia, to begin basic training. This was actually the career that Russell Williams was born to do. He could master even the most complicated aircrafts in a matter of days and with total ease. Again, it's all that Top Gun. That's insane. Maybe we could do it. How many times have we rode that ride at Wonderland? Candace Wonderland? Not me. I don't like roller coasters. (sighs) Come on, Rachel. Why are we friends? (laughs) Because I'm the bag holder. Everyone needs one of those at Wonderland. Yeah, that's true. It took him, uh, so it took Russell the average three years to earn his wings, at which point he headed out to Portage La Prairie, where he became a flight instructor to new trainees. And while there, he was considered one of the most sought after instructor instructors. So thank Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. Wow. This is how he was teaching the youngins how to fly. So in 1991, to the surprise of Russell's friends and family, Russell announced out of nowhere that he had met a woman and he was getting married. On June 1st of that year, he married Mary Elizabeth Harriman in an intimate ceremony at the Winnipeg Art Museum. Hmm. When asked by a friend at the ceremony if kids were in the future for him and his new wife, he replied with something that I think you and I can actually agree with him on for once. The world is too unstable a place to bring any more children into it. Oh, y- yep. Yeah. Yep. You're here. <laughs> no judgment to those who want to bring tiny people into the world. No, we love them all. We just love not them. For not for us. I like giving mine back. I get new ones every year and I get to return them every day. <laughs> so. In July of 1992, Williams and his new wife moved to CFB Shearwater in Nova Scotia. So in like a huge contrast to the base that he would later command, this is one of the smallest bases in the country. And while at Shearwater, Russell would fly Challenger Challenger jets, which were designed for electronic warfare and coastal patrol work. So guys, just so everyone knows, I'm going to be saying a lot of military phrases that I don't understand coming up here. So I'm going to ask about them. <laughs> don't don't ask me a lot, Rachel. I'm going to sound like I know what I'm talking about because I've rehearsed this a little bit, but <laughs> I just want to give a disclaimer. I don't know what any of this stuff means. Perfect. <laughs> they spent three years in Nova Scotia and in August of 1995, they ended up moving to their new home on Wilkie Drive in the Orleans area of Ottawa. Russell was posted to the 412 Squadron, also known as the VIP Squad, where he would fly the country's elite, such as the Prime Minister and the Governor General, along with other well-known politicians and celebrities. Whoa. I want to know who he flew. Me too. I do know some people, I will tell you soon, that are pretty mm-hmm. famous. Mm-hmm. In November of 1999, Williams was promoted to, uh, to Major and was appointed the Director General Military Careers. Okay, it sounds important. Don't ask me what it means. Nope. Okay. But it sounds important. It is important, I'm sure. In 2003, Williams received his Master of Defense Studies after writing a 55-page thesis on the U.S. invasion invasion of Iraq entitled Managing an Asymmetric World, a Case Study for Preventative War. Whoa. Again, I don't know what that means. Nope. I know it has something to do with what happened after September 11th. I do know that. And 
I do know that it was a really, really good thesis because he was promoted to lieutenant colonel after that because of that thesis. Yes. In 2004, he took charge of the 437 Transport Squadron, also known as the Husky Squadron, at CFP Trenton. Also this year, Russell and his wife purchased a cottage on Cozy Cove Lane in the little town of Tweed, or village of Tweed. So this is where Russell would spend much of his time uh, while he was working in Trenton at the base, because it was a shorter commute than driving back and forth from Ottawa, which was about a two and a half, three hour drive from Trenton, compared to like the 40 minute drive that he would make to Tweed. In May of 2005, Williams was given the honor of flying Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip on a trip that they took to Canada. What? No way. Yes. There's kind of blurry, grainy pictures of that that I'm going to throw up on Instagram or send to you to throw up on Instagram since you take care of that for me. Wow. Um, Yeah. So that's pretty cool. But obviously we know he's the topic of our story tonight. So he threw that all away. Like what? I know. It's a very confusing thing. And you'll see why at the end. Um, So he was pretty humble and a lot of his friends found it really odd that he never bragged about all of these professional accomplishments. Right. So he basically brushed off even something as incredible as flying queen of England, you know, Mm-hmm. he brushed it off as no big deal. Just like, wow. yeah, whatever, just another day on the job. Later in 2005, Williams took charge of Camp Mirage in Dubai. Kind of stick a pin in that because that will come up a little mm-hmm. bit later. Mm-hmm. So Camp Mirage, Camp Mirage was actually a top secret base, which served as the military air bridge between Trenton and Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. big deal to be in charge yeah. of that. Huge big deal. In July 2006, Williams was appointed to the less exciting position of Directorate of Air Requirements, which was basically like a desk jobs, and he oversaw the acquisition of aircraft and other major assets for the military. Hmm. So kind of boring for a guy like Williams. He likes to be like behind the stick of the airplane. That job. Behind the stick. (laughs) Behind the stick. It's not a steering wheel. What do they use? They use like a joystick, right? What is that called? I've never been in the cockpit, so I couldn't. <laughs> okay. With all of William's military achievements, he was on track for a pretty great life. And I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Yep. Everyone who knew him regarded him with the highest respect, with no one having anything bad to say about the guy. Aside from him being a bit socially awkward, there was nothing in his personality that would ever make the people who knew him suspect that William's life was about to take a dark turn. Oh, shit. All right. So and this is where we end to some of the crimes. And before we get into that, um, I just want to say that this um, we do have a trigger warning in here. It, there's a lot of sexual assault and rape and like fetish related oh. crimes and deviant behavior that sexually deviant behavior that some might be uncomfortable with. So we are going to talk about all of that. I'm not going to go into great detail, but if this isn't for you, please come back next week. Join us next week. Yeah. In September of 2007, Williams began to indulge in some very unsettling extracurriculars. He started breaking into homes in the Tweed area and his first targeted attack was attack was actually on a neighboring family on Cozy Cove Lane, where his cottage was. He broke into the family's home two or three times, stealing underwear and bathing suits from the family's 12-year-old daughter. What? Yeah. Excuse me? 
Yeah. He would also photograph himself wearing the items that he stole. Wait. He fit into them? Not the point, but... (laughs) You can (laughs) find these pictures. Yeah, that's fucked. Now, Williams and Harriman weren't a very social couple, so they didn't have a lot of friends out there in Tweed. But Mm -hmm. this family was one of the few uh, families that they would actually get to know in the tiny village, spending time with them, having dinner, and Williams would even take the kids out on his boat. Oh, that's so yucky. And I also read in a source that... He also, like, kind of mentored the 12-year-old daughter. Like, he helped her write, like, a school project on just use, like, about his career and and all of that. She was really, like, inspired by him. She looked up to him. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really disgusting. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. No, you might get to it. I don't want to get too far ahead. So, over the next year, Williams would continue his, like extremely deeply troubling behavior breaking into homes not only in tweed but he would also start to do this in that orleans area surrounding his home in ottawa Mm -hmm. because ottawa is a much larger area many of the break-ins were reported in tweed they weren't people just didn't realize it was happening so the police did issue a statement to the public in october of 2008 warning citizens to be vigilant when it came to their safety so they were saying like lock your doors windows and try not to be alone at night that kind of stuff like he was stealing other people's panties oh yeah this was like his mo he stole underwear like it was his actual job so (gasps) oh no he probably it's probably started like peeping on people because like you hear that a lot right that that it escalates But I don't know. There's nothing to confirm that. I'm just guessing. Russell would almost always take photos of his targets. Like, he would take photos of his target's family photos, Mm. if that makes sense. Like, go around and just snap a few shots. Mm. And he would also, like, take pictures of other personal belongings. And then he would meticulously catalog all of these pictures and his stolen items. So all of the underwear, all of the pictures of himself and other things, he would catalog them on his computer with very specific names and like file mm-hmm. names dates times like an ex- not like that keep inventory of everything he had i mean that's the military guy coming out at him right like that that Maybe. attention to detail yeah later on his statements to police about his crimes would all be confirmed because of his attention to detail in this respect he would even screenshot like newspaper articles and Facebook profiles of his unsuspecting victims. Oh, like, I think, I mean, that's kind of a classic killer or like criminal move to like, right. Like celebrities put their Grammys and their Academy Awards up on the shelf. He collects his newspaper articles that, you know, people are writing about him and his, the underwear, the trophies, right. Mm -hmm. In January, 2009 in Orleans, a 15 year old girl arrived home from vacation When she went upstairs to unpack, she noticed that all of her underwear had gone missing from her drawer. No. All All of them. She called down to her mother, who jokingly told her to check under her bed because she's like, teenagers are messy. Maybe somehow all of her underwear ended up under her bed. (laughs) Upon further inspection, the young girl also noticed that several of her bathing suits, dresses, and even personal photos had been taken from her room, and things like wall hangings or decorations, they had just been moved around. Creepy. I hate that. So creepy. And I don't like how young these girls are. I know. Pick on someone your own age. I know. It's very concerning. He does. Don't worry. Oh, 
The family called the police, who arrived to investigate the scene, and to everyone's horror, the investigation revealed DNA, I'll leave that to your imagination, on the young girl's dresser. Oh, we're just going to say it's fingernails, clipping, (laughs) hair, whatever. It wasn't. Spoiler alert. The girl was so scared and disgusted at what the police had found that she could not sleep in her room for quite some time. No. If I came home and there was that kind of crap on my dresser, forget it. Mm -mm, No, ma'am. Burn the whole thing down. Even like right now as a 36-year-old, if I came home and that happened to me... That's what I'm saying. I'm moving back to my mom and dad's house and sleeping in their bed (laughs) with them. And there's no way they're kicking me out. I don't know what I would do. Mm -mm. No. Thank you. It's a whole lot of nope right there. A whole lot of nope. Her parents would also not allow their daughter to be left alone at any point, thinking that she was a target of some perverted stalker. Yeah, smart. Over the next several months, many other homes in the Orleans and Tweed areas would also be broken into, the intruder operating in much the same way, breaking in, stealing intimates like laundry, bathing suits, etc., and some of these break-ins were reported to the police. However, however, like I said, many weren't because a lot of times people didn't even know that anything had been taken. Right. Again, you'd have to take the whole drawer for me to notice. So he knew what he was doing. In one account, you ready to get grossed out again? No. Okay. In one account, police had found that Williams had sprayed his DNA. So not just Drop. left it there, but sprayed it. Sprayed it. How All do you the- even spray? It's like a garden hose. Like you stick your thumb over the edge of the garden. <laughs> I don't know how he did it, but he sprayed it all over another unsuspecting victim's dressing table and had also photographed himself touching his erect penis with one of her makeup brushes. No, not the makeup brushes. And then then leaving the brush behind. No, uh uh-uh. Burn it down. Can, Can I hope she noticed before she used it. I don't know. I don't know who this victim is. Of course, many of his victims are not named publicly because... Because. Because. Photos would also be found of Williams laying on the beds of his victims, masturbating with their stuffed animals. No. While wearing... Leave the kids alone. And the animals. While wearing their underwear and and other lingerie items. No, honey. Now, again, a lot of his victims were children, which is disgusting. And it's gross all around. But the kids thing is like pushing it over a line. Yeah. 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 He was getting more and more risky in his behavior at this point. And he was entering houses now stark ass naked. Like he would disrobe before entering and wander around. And he would even do this sometimes while his victims were home. Stop it. He's just walking around butt ass naked while they're home. While they're home, sneaking around so that they don't see him. Can you imagine? I cannot. Turning the corner and there's some naked ass man in. No. I don't even. Ham. No. Ham. No ham. He would not have testicles after. So I I don't know what I would do. I would probably no. I I can't even. Like I, I don't know. I, I do. have, but like I'm not. I'll probably just sit there and cry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, like, why are you naked? <laughs> Get out of my house. <laughs> so yeah, so he was getting more. He actually had entered into one woman's home while she was in the shower, took all of her underwear, and then left before she got out of the shower. <gasps> all while being stark ass naked. When you're here, when you're in the shower, and you hear noises yeah. oh my god worst nightmare Ooh, no mm-mm. 
you at least don't like I at least have pets. So when I hear the noises, I can like brush it off as one of the cats doing something. But like, you don't even have that. No. And that's why I have a triple deadlock on my door. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, He had written a really weird letter to this girl from the shower after and the letter like made it sound like a bunch of kids broke into her house. Anyways, he had it on the computer. There was no evidence that he sent it, but it was weird. Wait, so she got out of the shower and there was a note on her computer? No, not this woman. You've probably oh. heard another story about there's another woman that that happens to. You probably heard that story because Keith Morrison talks about No, I thought that's woman. what you had just said. That no, so he wrote, a, he had wrote um, a letter on his computer to this woman that made it sound like it was some teenager that broke into the house, like loaded with spelling mistakes, oh, okay. very um, it, like immature wording of things, I guess. Right. And yeah, he made it sound like a teenager had written it, I guess. Uh, but he never sent the letter to her. It's just weird that he even wrote it to begin with and saved it in his little folder that reference this woman and and all of her underwear that he stole so yeah he's russell's a weird guy very weird very weird um and it was clear at this point that russell's desires were growing and he was becoming less satisfied with just breaking in and stealing things and this is when in 2009 russell would escalate from fetish related burglaries to sexual assaults no come on just stick with the panty snatching you were a good panty snatcher just leave it at that rachel it never ends there Oh, never. So on September 17th, 2009, Russell would break into who we're going to call Jane Doe. Uh, This victim was never identified publicly. So he would break into her house and she was home alone with her eight week old baby daughter. Oh, no. Her boyfriend was away up north working at his job with Ontario Hydro. And she was awoken violently in her bedroom by Williams. No. He had broken in through a side window by cutting through the screen. He was wearing a sweatshirt and a dark pair of pants and a hat that was partially covering his face. Jane actually thought that she was having a bad dream at first, but quickly realized that this nightmare was much more real. Oh, God. Williams held down her head and she tried to struggle, but was subdued by the intruder when he pressed his full body weight onto her. She asked if he was going to kill her, to which he simply replied, there's no need for that. Mm. He started asking her lots of questions, which she willingly answered, um, because she figured that the best thing to do was to cooperate with this Mm -hmm. monster's demands. However, when he asked her where her boyfriend was, she did refuse to answer, which is smart, because she hoped that if he didn't know if someone would walk in on them, that maybe the attack would end, Right. right? And he would just leave. At one point, when he was undressing her, she tried to tell him that she had just had a baby eight weeks ago and that he probably wouldn't find her very attractive. And to that, he replied, you're perfect. So that's nice of you, Russell. Fuck you. I I feel violated. Like, that is... mm -mm. No. Williams blindfolded her and tied her to a chair. And he began taking photos of her and had her pose in sexually explicit positions. The attack lasted for more than two hours, and although there was no sexual intercourse during this attack, William did fondle the victim and stole several pairs of her underwear. I mean, he can't leave without stealing the underwears, but I'm glad he left her, like, alive. alive. Yeah. Yeah. Before leaving, the intruder, for some very strange reason, asked her how old her baby was, which is fucking creepy. Gross. 
when he was sure that when she was sure that the intruder Williams had left, the victim called first her mother-in-law and then the police. Now this really pisses me off. The OPP who are the police in Tweed, because it's such a small area, they don't have their own police. Mm -hmm. They did not take Jane Doe seriously. I mean, that is not surprising at all. No. They thought that she was being erratic and perhaps that this was a ploy to get her boyfriend to come home from working up north. Oh, fuck off. Wait for it. They even considered that postpartum depression could be a factor. No. To which I say, fuck you. Go fuck yourself. I don't have kids. I've never had a baby, but I can tell you postpartum depression is real. I have many girlfriends and family members that have experienced it. I've seen it play out, not firsthand, but I guess watching my loved ones go through it. So fuck you, whoever said that postpartum depression caused her to fake a sexual assault. I hate you. I hate you. Trash. Yeah. Williams, actually, as we'll find out later in his confession, returned back to the home a few more times, but as the victim was staying elsewhere, thankfully, she was not harmed, and he only stole more underwear. <sighs> that is a relief. Holy cow. And they ne- she never went back to that house. They ended up selling that house. So Lori Massacott was the Williams' next victim, and that happened, her assault took place two weeks later on September 30th, 2009. Just two Uh, weeks later? Two weeks later. So Loria had fallen asleep on her couch while watching late night TV. And at some point in the night, Williams entered through an unlocked window. With Loria still asleep under her blanket, he struck her several times on the head and held her by her throat for several minutes. Oh, God. He told her he was part of a group that was robbing her and that his job was to control her. He blindfolded her with a pillowcase and tied her to a chair. And then he used a knife to cut her clothes off of her body. He began doing his usual thing of taking pictures and having Lori do sexually explicit poses for him. And at one point, Lori did complain that she had a headache, probably caused by the blows to the head earlier. And Williams actually got up and got her some aspirin. He even rubbed her head and apologized for hurting her, which apparently this was according to him and according to like recording different recordings they found on his computer. This was not abnormal for him to have this like, I don't want to say compassionate side, but that's what it appears to be. Yeah, He's just being all nice and kind. Yeah. While he does terrible things to these women. Like what a mind fuck. Yeah. Russell Williams. Yeah. So during the attack, he kept reassuring her that it would all be over soon. And he kept saying that he had to leave by 4.30 a.m. And later on, Lori remembered that she had a neighbor that always, like, (gasps) as though he was on cue, left for work at 4.45 a.m. No. So so it was obvious to Lori that uh, she didn't know who her intruder was, but whoever it was to her, he had been watching and doing his homework. Like, he, Mm -hmm. he knew So the attack lasted several hours, and when the intruder was getting ready to leave, he told Lori to begin counting to 300 and not to stop. She did as she was told, but she did eventually stop, like, around 75, because she thought that he was gone. She couldn't hear him anymore, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't, and he yelled at her to keep going, which she did. And once sure that her attacker had left her home, Lori was able to call police. But the absolute horror of the evening wasn't over yet, because... (gasps) When the police arrived, they actually made Lori stay in her restraints under the same blanket that she was assaulted under. You're kidding. Until they could process the scene. You're kidding me. I'm not kidding you. This happened. 
you're telling me that the police got there and were like, don't move, ma'am. You are tied up and naked and in sexually explicit positions, but don't move. A bunch of us are going to come through and take pictures of you. Yes, basically. I am disgusted. And I get that they have to be thorough, but oh my God, I no. want price here. Yeah, no, there's a line and they crossed it. Yeah. Once they were done with her, the police handed her a robe and walked her outside in front of all the police officers, which of course were mainly men. Mm -hmm. Right. So again, just another humiliation piled on top of what she's already been through. Mm -hmm. And this is when an officer informed Lori that there was another attack two weeks before hers. And she realized this would have potentially been prevented had the police informed the public that there was a sexual predator on the loose. Had they done their fucking job and believed a woman. Yes, I was going to say, why would they have informed the public when they thought that the other woman had faked it because of postpartum depression? Fuck you. Ugh. Okay. I I know there's some really good police officers out there. I'm not saying there aren't, but people in charge of this were... Shit. they They did not do the right thing here. The whole ordeal with the police took five hours to unfold. Five hours? So five extra hours after Williams had left Lori. Hey. Wow. So in the days following her attack, the police continued to question Lori about who she thought her attacker could have been. And eventually after talking to one of her friends, she was convinced that she knew who it was. So she called police and gave them the name of their very first suspect in this case and in the other tweet attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, Larry Jones. Larry so you'll, Jones. you'll notice this is not Russell Williams that we're talking about. Hey, Larry Jones, where'd you come from? Yeah, Larry Jones. So Larry Jones was an elderly man who lived with his wife on Cozy Cove Lane. And he wasn't particularly liked in the community, but he was sort of like the token grumpy old man. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Walter. Community needs one. Yeah. I, and whenever, um, like when I was reading about this, I just kept picturing, like, Walter Matthau and Grumpy Old Men. Right. You remember that movie? That's what I kept picturing. He doesn't look anything like him, but in my my mind's eye, that's who who they were talking about here. So he had lived in Tweed his entire life, and he had done a lot of jobs over the years in Tweed. So he was really well-known in the community. Everybody knew this guy. Right. Some neighbors described him as being overbearing and abrasive. And on October 29th, 2009, Larry Jones actually returned home. So this is about a month after Lori Massacott's attack. And the police were out in his front yard and they were carrying out a search warrant in his home, looking for anything that could tie him to these attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, the police informed him that they had been investigating him for weeks and that he would be detained. And after the search warrant didn't turn up any evidence and Larry passed a lie detector test, he was eventually cleared. But like this really took a toll on his life. Like it really destroyed his life for a while. People, because he was already like a figure in the community that people really weren't too fond of. I think people, if you're brought in for a crime like that, people will think you did it, whether you're cleared or not, right? They'll always be suspicious of you. So this really did affect his life in a big way. Poor man. Yeah. Okay. A couple of months later, in November 2009, Anne Sand Cook would be the victim of a very strange break and enter at her home along Highway 37, just down the road from where Jessica Lloyd lived, where we started this. Right. Okay. Um, so she's considered living in Belleville, just to give you a little okay. pro preface there. So she had stopped at home after being out. I think she was out, like she may have been out coming from work. 
And she was going to change quickly before she was heading out to a birthday party that she was going to that evening. Mm -hmm. When she entered her bedroom, she noticed that some of her drawers were pulled open and some of her sex toys and underwear were missing. Oh. And at first she thought, well, I have a friend. He has a key to the house. Maybe he came over and is pulling like a weird prank on me. Yeah. Oddly going through my sex toys. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just a weird prank. Mm -hmm. Maybe her friend's a little weird. Maybe he's a little kinky. Who knows? Okay. Uh, so she called him and asked if he had taken anything. He was like, hey, have you been in my room and taken anything Imagine a little that weird? Conversation. So oh. have you seen that little pink thing in my drawer? Did you take all my dildos? <laughs> well, he obviously denied it and quickly came over to Anne's house since he knew it might not be safe for her to be there alone right, right at that present moment. Yeah, and call. Anne also thought that something more nefarious was going on, right? So she did debate calling the police, but when her friend came over, he was like, you know what? I bet you it's just some kids, you know, being like silly little perverted deviants. Robin, you're stealing your dildos and having a good laugh. Because that's what kids do. They just come into your house, they steal your dildos, and they leave without a trace. (laughs) Well, but I mean, this is a weird, this is a small area. Like, you never know. Yeah, sure. Her friend did end up convincing her not to call the police, and he assumed, like, you know, the police would just laugh it off anyways. They've got more important things to do than to investigate some missing dildos. So they left, they had a good laugh, and then they left and went to the party. But coming near to the end of the party, she still felt a little freaked out, so she decided to stay over with a friend instead of going home that night. So her friend drove her home the next morning, and she ran upstairs quickly to make some photocopies in her office before her friend that drove her home, he was going to take her, and they were in a carpool to work together. But when she walked into her office, she saw that her old computer that she never used, mind you, was turned on and the screensaver had been disabled. And in big letters, big, bold, underlined letters on the screen, read the words, go ahead, call the police. I want to show the judge your big dildos. What? Uh, That's like some horror movie shit. What's your favorite scary movie? Yeah. No, uh uh-uh. My heart would come out of my asshole. The call's coming from inside the house. Yes. Oh, my God. So all of her underwear was also missing. So now not just the dildos, but the underwear is also gone. And when Anne called the police, she called the Belleville police this time to tell them what had happened. She asked them, she said, could this be connected to those two sexual assaults in Tweed that just happened? Mm. Um, and the bubble police had no idea what she was talking about. Stop it. Because, like I said, the OPP was handling the cases in Tweed, and they had not shared that information with the Belleville police, which you would think, being in such close proximity, maybe would be relevant. Yeah. So Anne took it upon herself to start telling every woman she knew to lock their doors, lock their windows, hide your wife, hide your kids, hide your husbands. Hide your panties. Hide your panties. <laughs> in the months that followed, Jane Doe and Lori Masakati's attack and the break-in into Anne Marsanne Cook's home, even more break-ins would occur in both the Tweed and Orleans area. But near the end of November 2009, these crimes would escalate to a whole new level of evil. Oh, no. Now, before we go on to that, can I just say that the fact that that message was left on Anne Marsanne Cook's computer, I just wanted to point this out. They had had the conversation about calling a poli- the police before they left for the party. Uh-huh. And the message said, go ahead, call the police. I want to show the judge your big dildos. Was he in the house, Rachel? He was still in the house. 
when they were there. OMG. It's a good thing she called her friend because. And then didn't come home that night. Oh my gosh. (gasps) Chills. I have chills. So, yeah. So now we're into November of 2009. And this will be when Russell escalates to murder. Uh oh. Uh, Marie Franz Comal was a 37 year old corporal in the 437 squadron at CFB Trenton. So, this is that Husky squadron that um, Russell was in charge of over in Trenton there. Okay. Um, she lived in the Brighton, in Brighton, Ontario, about a half hour from the Trenton base. During the 1990s, uh, Marie Franz worked for NATO for the Canadian Army and was stationed in Germany. But she later switched to the Air Force, making her way to CFB Trenton as a flight attendant. Wow. Yeah. In 2002, she was actually posted to Afghanistan and was part of the first group of Canadian troops to be cycled through the U.S.-led invasion against the Taliban, serving as a traffic technician. Holy cow. Yeah. Good for her. Seems like a badass lady. Yeah. So she would drive forklifts and would be loading and unloading aircraft. And she also worked at Camp Mirage in Dubai, which is the same top secret uh, base that Russell was in charge of in 2005. There's the pin. Yeah. Yes. So that's why I told you to remember that. Yes. Okay. Marie France had only worked at CFB Trenton for about a year when the tragic events that took place on November 23rd, 2009 occurred. Mm. Marie France had just returned home from an overseas flight, and after a brief conversation with her boyfriend, she was getting ready to go to bed. She went to her basement to look for her little kitty cat before returning before she was turning in for the night. And when she got to the basement, she noticed that the cat was fixated on something in the dark corner of her basement behind the furnace. Oh no. So she ventured down to investigate further when she was violently attacked by an intruder, who, of course, is Russell. When she spotted him, she yelled out, you bastard, before being struck several times by a flashlight. Yeah, because she knows him. Well, we don't know that for sure, but she pro- you know what? I'm going to guess that she does. He denies that that he... Yeah. So she struggled with Russell, but was finally subdued when he threw her to the floor and he tied her hands behind her back. He then tied her to a pole and covered her eyes with duct tape. He started taking photos of Marie France, who was already undressed uh, because she was getting ready for bed. So she was home. She was by herself. She was already undressed. The intruder then left the basement to be sure the house was secure and that they wouldn't be interrupted by anyone. He even took her house key and broke it off in the lock in the front door so that nobody could even get in if they had a spare key. What a sick fuck. Yeah. Like he thought it out. He closed all the curtains and removed the small nightlights from the living room and the spare bedroom so people couldn't see in. And then he returned to the basement. Um, But when he started to bring Marie France up the stairs, she started to fight with him. She was a tough bitch. And he ended up knocking her unconscious. And while she was laying unconscious on the stairs, he took photos of her again. He's a sick fuck. Over the next two hours, Marie France was brutally raped and assaulted while Russell videotaped and photographed the entire thing. Mm -hmm. I hope she was unconscious still because that's her only saving grace at this point. I don't think she was. Oh. But I don't know for sure. Okay. So I can't speak on that at all, but I, I don't think she was. So, and the reason why I don't think that is because there was a point when Russell had left the room. And I'm not sure what he was doing, but he had left the bedroom where, where he had, and he'd left Marie France by herself. And she had took this opportunity to get to her feet, 
shut the bedroom door and run to the bathroom. And she was desperately trying to alert anyone by like banging on the window with her head and stuff like that. But her hands were still bound behind her and her face was covered in duct tape. And it just, it was a futile attempt. Yeah. He broke into the bathroom and got her out of there and brought her back to the bedroom where the assault continued. Um, And in the videos that he made, a badly battered Mari France can be heard pleading with her rapist uh, for her life, saying, I want to live so badly. Russell responded to this with, did you ever expect to? Before smothering her by placing duct tape over her mouth and her nose. Oh my God. Her last words to Russell were, please have a heart. This makes me so sad every time I read it. Yeah. The attacker took more photos of Mari France's lifeless body before cleaning up some of the scene and leaving the home. Mm. He, like, did a load of laundry. He's so gross. Yeah. So, because she wasn't expected at work, Mari France actually wasn't discovered for nearly 30 hours after her attack. She was discovered by her boyfriend, Paul Berlinger, Berlinger, who went to check on her after she failed to show up for a dinner plans that they had made, and she wasn't answering any of his calls. Once he found her body, he quickly called 911, and of course, he was considered a person of interest, because the boyfriend always did it. But he was quickly cleared after passing a polygraph exam. And just a side note, this was the first murder the city of Brighton had experienced in over 30 years. So oh. they, those police officers really didn't know what to do. And with so little to go on, the police assured the public that they believed this was an isolated incident and that there was no need to worry. Oh, right. Isolated incident. But someone was still lurking in the Belleville Tweed area. And in January of 2010, on Highway 37, the Tweed Creeper, as he became dubbed, would strike again. Oh, no. He went from panty snatcher to Tweed Creeper. Yeah. And little did they know, full-on murderer. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. So bringing things back to the disappearance of Jessica Lloyd, where we started, on the night that Jessica went missing, she had actually been out with friends. She had texted one of the friends she was out with around 10.30 p.m. just to let them know that she had made it home safely. Little did she know that someone had been watching her. Ugh. Williams would later tell police that he had seen Jessica sometime before through her basement window while she was on her treadmill, and... I hope this doesn't sound creepy, but I've driven by that house. I, I've seen it in person, and there's no way that if you're just casually driving by that you would be able to see into the basement. Right. So he was there up at the house. Oh, yeah. Like, he somehow knew that she lived there, and he was scouting that out. Like, he knew. Mm. So I didn't go out looking for the house or anything like that. I'm not into doing that but because i'm from the area like i just my uncle knew where it was and he pointed it out one day but i know from firsthand experience that you can't see into the basement so already i'm calling bullshit on that yeah so earlier in the evening while jessica was out of the house with friends uh williams had actually crept in through the back back door to do a little recon scope the place out and make sure that she did actually live alone before coming back to the house while jessica was sleeping Later that evening, Russell broke into Jessica's house with the intention of violently waking her, so he wanted to go in there, fist swinging, to wake her up. But before he had a chance to do that, Jessica awoke to find William standing beside her bed. Oh, oh God. Yeah. So scary. 
Williams quickly subdued her by binding her hands and holding her body down. And just like with Marie France, William, Williams covered Jessica's eyes with duct tape before embarking on several hours of rape and abuse of his oh victim. Oh my god. Jessica found her, or fought her attacker in the best way she knew how. She complied with every demand. Smart. Hoping that this would appease the attacker and that he would let her live. After several hours, Williams dressed Jessica and walked her from her home through the dark field behind her house and loaded her into the passenger side of his silver Nissan Pathfinder. So remember at the beginning, they found the tire tracks in the woods, but then they found the two sets of footprints frozen in the snow. One were Williams. One was Jessica. (gasps) They drove from Highway 37 to Williams' home on Cozy Cove Lane. Once in tweet, the attack on Jessica continued through the night. Mm-hmm. During the attack, Williams brought Jessica to the shower to clean her, let her sleep, which I'm sure she didn't do much sleeping. No, absolutely not. And he even gave her something to eat. Like, there goes the, you're kind, but you're a, such a fucking dick. Like, ugh. Yeah. yeah. It's so gross. It is. At one point, Jessica had a seizure. And she pleaded with Williams to take her to the hospital, telling him that she thought she was going to die. Yeah. She is recorded on video saying, if I die, will you tell my mom that I love her? Oh, my God. My heart. How scared she must have been. Especially now you're having a seizure. Like, that's scary in itself. Yeah. Along the situation that you're in. Oh, my goodness. This poor, poor woman. Wow. And he even, like, he sat with her and talked her through the seizure and then after the seizure, he raped her again. Oh, my God. Like, oh, yeah, it's my God. very troubling, to say the least. Yeah. After almost 21 hours, Williams again dressed Jessica, and he started to lead her through the house, making her believe he was going to take her home. But that was not going to happen. And with her eyes still covered in duct tape, Williams struck her from behind with a large flashlight. Mm-hmm. And he... She was unconscious, but I have a feeling with the amount of blood that was found in his house that she probably died. But he did strangle her just to be sure that she was gone. He wrapped Jessica in a blanket and left her in his cold garage while he got ready. Because this is January in Canada, right? So this is cold. Yeah. Um, And then he got ready and he got on with his day, went to work, and then drove back to Ottawa. And she remained in the garage for several days, I think three days before Williams finally took her body and dumped it 13 kilometers from his house on an old hunting road. And just a little side note here, he, where he took her body and concealed the body was, um, the hunting road he took her to, it was like near like an area where Larry Jones would do all of his hunting. And I guess he, because he knew Larry, he had asked him at one point after Larry had been a suspect, Oh, where is it again that you go hunting? So Larry Jones has this like theory that he, that Russell knew that, yeah, that Russell knew Larry had been questioned about the sexual assaults. So to set him up, he was going to put Jessica's body there. Just like an added sprinkle of dickery. Just just another fuck you. Yeah. I don't know if that's what Russell Williams was doing. There's no like evidence to say convincingly yes or no, that that's what he was doing. This is a Larry Jones theory. So Wow. I like it. I, I think Larry yeah. might be onto something there, but we just write we that just down, know. Larry. You need you're gonna need that. Yeah. So there are many more gruesome details about Jessica's murder and her assault, and I'm not gonna get into it. But Russell does talk about this in his confession, which you can find on YouTube, and I will link it 
below in the show notes if anyone wants to watch those. Mm-hmm. It is quite long. It's not the full nine hours, but it's there's a lot there. And I would recommend you watch it only because we'll get to it later. I'll tell you why after. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> never mind. I, I'm not going to say it now because I'm going to tell you later. So uh, after Jessica's disappearance, of course, law enforcement acted swiftly and an extensive search was underway. Williams oh, finally, had- finally, law enforcement acts swiftly. Well, with Jessica, they did, thankfully. And I, like I said, I don't think the Brighton police knew what to do in, in their case because there hadn't been a murder there in 30 right. years. Right. And they thought it was isolated. So while they were investigating it, they didn't have the resources. So um, with Jessica's disappearance happening, they did act quickly. Um, and also, they at this point, they still don't know that Marie France Kamal and Jessica Lloyd and the sexual assaults in Tweed, they don't know that they're related. True. They, I think I'm just bitter because they've dropped the ball so far that... Yeah. So... Um, and I think the reason why they acted so swiftly with Jessica is because they're they're starting to get the idea that maybe the tweet the things happening in tweet are related to her, but they still don't know anything about what's happened to Mari France and Brighton. Okay. Right. right. Okay. So yeah. So, yeah. So Williams had even signed off on military air searches, like I said before, which feels really narcissistic to me because he would have been so confident that no one was ever going to link him to the crime or find Jessica yeah. that he would insert himself in at this level to this investigation. No. So he's like, yeah, go ahead. Try to find them. I dare you. Yeah. And the thing is, is that he didn't even, and we'll get there, but he really didn't conceal the body that well. Yeah. Like, it's not like he went like above and beyond. He didn't even like, he didn't bury the body or anything like that. But he was just confident know. he wouldn't be linked to them. Yeah. So thankfully, Russell, a man known for his meticulous attention to detail, would make some really crucial mistakes throughout the murder of Jessica Lloyd, which will bring us all the way back to where we started, which is his interrogation. So we started this at the beginning. He was brought in for questioning. And then he confessed. So once he was in the interview room at the police station, Russell was introduced to Detective Sergeant Jim Smith of the Ontario Provincial Police. When he enters the interview room, he is confident. He's not worried at all. He answers questions that the police throw at him with ease. And he tries to impress Smith by casually talking about his military career, to which Smith epically just brushes off every time, which is legend. Dairy. Sergeant Jim Smith is like another person I want to be friends with. Yeah. Imagine too for a narcissist. Oh, that's got to be grinding his gears. Well, and you'll notice if you do watch the interrogation, this is why I recommend it because this interrogation is flawless. Like mm-hmm. Jim Smith is a legend. I, I give him so much credit for taking down this monster because he... Nobody could have done it better than this guy. Right. So Smith actually asked at one point Williams if he was familiar with CSI. And Williams is like, oh, yeah, but I'm more of a law and order guy, which is very (laughs) important information. Thank you for sharing. And then Smith eventually explains why they are there and asks if he would be willing to give over evidence. So blood, DNA, fingerprints, his boots that he's wearing, etc. And William agrees, which is really funny because this idiot wore the same boots to the police station as he did to Jessica Lloyd's house on the night of her murder. Come on. And you can start to see in the interrogation when Williams does start to begin to start worrying that they might be onto him when he 
asked for discretion about the whole thing as it could negatively impact the base, as he calls it. Oh, okay. So he keeps, he keeps saying that. You can tell he's starting to get worried. And I don't know if it's when they took his boots that he was like, oh, I'm fucked. Mm-hmm. But, so Smith enters and exits the interrogation room several times throughout the interview, each time bringing back more and more evidence try, um, tying Russell to the crimes. And eventually he lets Russell know that he'd better start talking because everything is pointing to him instead of away from him and things are getting out of control really fast. Oh, shit. And like, again, the language that Smith uses throughout the interview process was always carefully cra- crafted to appeal to Russell as a human. So saying things like, you can have the control here, Russ, and would hopefully make him want to talk to Smith, which oh, he wasn't yeah. wrong. After being told that search warrants were being served at both his Tweed and Ottawa residences, Russell, taking some long moments of silence, started singing like a canary. Oh, I they bet. always do. And I'm just going through this really quick. I'm giving you a brief synopsis of this interrogation, but it is, it's awesome. Like from Jim Smith's perspective, I've, I've watched the whole thing. It's like, I think on you, it's all on YouTube and it's like two hours each part or something like that. So, so you do have to invest some time here. Yeah. I'll link it below. You guys should watch it. So he made sure to note that his main concern was minimizing the impact on his wife and the Canadian forces. And he readily started handing over info on where the police could find all of his like hard drives, photographs, panty stashes, memory sticks, his rape kit. Wow. He, and he also didn't want the police like tearing apart his home in Ottawa, which had just been finished being built and was quote, his wife's dream home. Hmm. Thoughtful of him. Yeah. So at least he's thinking of his wife. So, and in case anyone are wondering, his wife had nothing to do with this. And I really, I don't think she knew. A lot of people speculate, like, how could she not? But I think he was so skilled at compartmentalizing his life that I believe that she didn't know. I don't think she holds any responsibility in this. This was a Russell problem. This wasn't wasn't her. Dolo, dolo. Yeah. So the police were able to quickly start finding the evidence they needed to charge Russell with these crimes, but they needed to know one important thing. Where was Jessica? Mm -hmm. Finally, Russell looks across the table at Jim Smith and says... Got a map. And from that point on, Russell detailed both of the sexual assaults in Tweed, as well as the murders of Corporal Camo and Jessica Lloyd. When asked why he did this, he couldn't give an answer saying he doubted it wouldn't make any difference anyways. And he still hasn't given an answer to that question, by the way. And when asked how he felt about these women, he simply said, I didn't know any of them. What? What a fucker. Which we know is a lie because Mari Franz Como, like he would have known from work. And he, he says he, he says he only met her one time, but there's been other, like if you read the book that I suggested or do any sort of research on this, you'll see that he knew her and he's, he's trying to distance himself, mm-hmm. you know, trying to pull himself out of it. So just to take a little bit of that accountability off of him. Right. Yeah. I take what he says with a, a grain of salt Absolutely. throughout this whole interview. I, I'm glad that he admitted to it. I'm glad that he um, pleaded guilty to these crimes, but take what he says with a grain mm-hmm. of salt. He's a piece of shit. Yes. So after nine hours, the interview with Williams concluded. He was arrested and taken to the Quinney Detention Center in Napanee and was locked in solitary confinement for his protection. I don't know why they do that. They did that with Clifford Olson too. If you I know. Remember. Just let the other guys have him. He's a, he's, yeah. I know we want good justice to happen. But, but we also I, want a good ass kicking too. Yeah. 
We don't want him dead. We just want his ass kicked. Mm -hmm. This would become his new home for the next eight months while he awaited trial. He pleaded guilty to what would end up being a total of 88 charges, which included Mm -hmm. two sexual assaults, two first-degree murder, and dozens upon dozens of break-and-enter and and theft charges. goodness. Upon searching his devices, investigators did disclose that there was child pornography found on his computers, but he refused to plead guilty to this charge, and with everything else he was being charged with, they did end up taking that off the table because they knew that, regardless, he was going to be locked away forever. I mean, like, sure, okay, it didn't matter for his charges, but, like, who else would have that on your hard drive, bud? So, passwords. they decided to just stick with the charges that he confessed to because they didn't want to put anyone through a trial. Do you know what I mean? fair enough. So, they said, okay, like, he's going away forever, we're going to take those charges off, that way he will plead guilty and we can avoid the mess of a trial. Yep. So, his trial, which I know I just said there was no trial, this is just a guilty plea being entered, so... It was held at the Belleville Courthouse, and I will tell you that I have heard my Nana complain about a lot of things, but this was a major one because it was a madhouse in Belleville. And because where the courthouse is, it's like a series of one-way streets, so all the media and everything that was there, it was so hard to get around of that area, according to my Nana, who was trying to go to the library, which is close to the courthouse. So she said it was a nightmare down there, and this is not... This was so high profile. This is not something that the Belleville area is used to experiencing in their day-to-day lives. So crazy. They were in the spotlight for once in their life down there, and it was crazy. So, um, so yeah. So the trial was held at the Belleville Courthouse and lasted four days in mid-October in mid-October of 2010. It took so long to read out all of the charges that the prosecutors had to switch off because their throats would start to hurt. Oh my god. It's fucked. That is. Uh, the courtroom was filled with media, family, and friends of the victims, as well as victims themselves. So these are the victims of like the panty thefts and stuff. Yeah. And you know what's really sick and scary is that a lot of these victims had no idea that they were victims until the police had contacted them because again, are these your panties? <laughs> yeah, well, Russell had a, was so detailed in his oh, inventory. Right. That the, he had their addresses, their phone numbers, their names, and no. linked to which part of, like, which, like, item of of lingerie they were oh, connected to. On. Like, it's... A little catalog. Yeah. Jessica's mother, Roxanne, and her brother, Andy, sat in the courtroom each day holding a picture of Jessica so that people would remember that this trial wasn't about Williams, but should be about the victims of his vicious crimes. Mm-hmm. After pleading guilty to all charges and reading a brief statement... Williams was whisked away to the infamous Kingston Pen on October 18th, 2010, where he was supposed to be destined to spend the rest of his life behind bars. So if you're from Ontario, you will know that, or if you're from Canada or anywhere, you will know that the Kingston Penitentiary has actually been closed. Um, So he's actually now in Port Cartier in Quebec. Okay. Canadian forces actually burned his uniform and shredded his medals and did a sort of exorcism from the military. And this was, I think, the first time that the Canadian military had ever done something like this. Wow. Good for them, though. I'm glad. Yeah. So he will actually still receive, though, his $60,000 a year military pension because of the way the Canadian law protects a citizen's pension. What? So even if you went to jail, you would still get your pension when you got out. So thankfully, he... yeah, I know. It's 
I don't know who's going to get that money because technically his he and his wife are divorced, but I'm not sure how that works. So I don't know where that money's going because he's never getting out of jail. So he won't get it. So I yeah. don't really know. Okay. Um, yeah. People were really pissed about that, but there's really like legally nothing. Because if they set the precedent that his could be taken away, and- then anyone's could. So if you're in jail for something not like Russell Williams. Right. You risk losing that pension. Right. Okay, so I understand why it's there, but like, okay, so he's never going to get it anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, and I don't know if if um, Mary Elizabeth Harriman will get it because they're divorced now. Like, he granted her a divorce. Right. Um, right. And that cottage that he owned on Cozy Cove Lane, after um, he was arrested, they put it on the market and they actually ended up selling it. And the people that bought it were that family that lived next door, whose 12-year-old daughter was the first victim. Oh my God. So they were like, real estate is real estate. It's like a good hey. location. They could make a lot of money off of it. So I think that cottage still exists. I've, I haven't been out to tweet in like probably 30 years. No, that's not true. Yeah. I went to camp out there. So that's like 20 years. Revenge though, you know? Yeah. You my daughter's panties. I'm going to take your home for dirt. Your- yeah, for dirt. Dirt ass cheap. Like they did not pay very much for it. And there's been like lawsuits and stuff against um, William's wife. But because... I, like I said, there's no proof or like any evidence suggesting that she was involved in any of this. And I can't say with certainty, with certainty that she wasn't. I am in the camp that she wasn't. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah. There's nothing that they can really do. They can't really sue her for something she didn't do. Yeah, so now there was like, there was a lot of articles like just about the way that their assets were divided after he went to prison. And so that's kind of where it got murky there, but I didn't really understand much of that legal side of it. So I didn't want to comment too much on that. That's why I didn't put a lot of that in here. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as I could tell by what I've researched that so far, none of the lawsuits have, like, she hasn't had to pay any of the victims anything. I, and I think the, the lawsuits have been dropped against her. So okay, as far as I could tell, Good. I could be wrong about that. And if I am, please, somebody can enlighten me and, and share that with me. But yeah, that is the story of Russell Williams. So I hope I did wow. an okay job. Yeah, what a good story. So, oh, and another weird fact. My uncle worked as a butcher in Trenton for many years. And all I kept thinking while I was researching this is, I wonder if Russell Williams bought meat from him (laughs) while he was in Trenton. Wouldn't that have been strange? Yeah. Six degree separation right there. Right. Exactly. Wow. Um, All right, guys. So that was the story of Russell Williams and... Before we end tonight, I did want to shout out to a friend of ours who sent me an email, and she's coming all the way from Down Under. Down Under. And her name is Carly. Thank you for listening, Carly. We love you. Yay, Carly. Love you and miss you. And we also want to say hi to Kent. Hi, Kent. Um, We miss you guys and hope we can do another FaceTime sometime soon with all of us together. Awesome. And Erica, I'm really excited for next week's episode, which is my special birthday episode. Yes, I have something pretty different. Not too different. It's still true crime and and murdery, but a little bit different than what we've been covering. So um, hopefully you like it. I don't think you would have heard of this one. So yay! hopefully you like it. But yeah, 
If you guys want to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Story Crime Pod. And keep those emails coming, guys. I love hearing from you. And if you have a case that you want me to cover, I love hearing about cases that I may not have ever heard of. So if there's some, you know, unique case or just some case you really um, enjoy hearing about, just uh, send it to me in an email and I'll research it and we'll do an episode on it. Because I love, I love learning about all these new things. I'm actually leaving my second job next week, sadly. I love it there, but I am going to step back and I hope that that'll free up some more time to get some good content out there for everybody. Yay. That's exciting. Yeah. So yeah. So thank you again all for listening and we'll catch you next week. All right. Well, have a good night, Erica. Bye. Bye. Bye.